can rank these songs together podcast on forever nothing's gonna stop us now because we're ranking all the beatles all the beatles songs nothing's gonna stop us nothing's gonna stop us now Yes, Excellent. I love it. I love it. Welcome, everybody. That's a good choice. That was really. That was good. I feel like I had that song stuck in my head the other day. For you did. Some, did it I? Was, okay. It was a terrible day. So that's why I'm sorry. Uh, so that's why you're doing that. That's today, why to, it's in my to head. Punish me. Yeah. Retaliation was swift. And <laughs> now it's back in my swift head. Swift and brutal. <laughs> Deal with it. Um, oh. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another exciting episode of Ranking the Beatles, uh, episode number forty-six. How about that? Hope everybody is doing wonderfully this week. How are you, my dear? How have things been treating you? Pretty good. Getting yeah. closer and closer to the big five zero. Yeah. That's exciting. Yeah, we're coming up on 50 episodes. Yeah, not age 50. Right. Sorry. No. I'm not quite there yet. <laughs> not yet. Uh, you know, they say once you hit 50 episodes, the odds of you going the distance with your podcast plan uh, increases exponentially. So I feel like the time. odds are getting higher of us hitting uh, our full <laughs> our full uh, show Love. plan, which, I mean, it would also be incredibly rude if we're like, hey, guys, we're going to do 223 Beatles songs. And then we tap out and at then, like 178. <laughs> like, y'all, I am burned out. <laughs> we're done. Wait, what number song are we on? We're at number 171 on the list this Oh, week. okay. So we're even past 178. So we're doing pretty well. Yeah. So yeah, we're doing we're doing good. Like, it'd be worse if we were like... Top out at like 25. <laughs> <laughs> then I just like post a Facebook post. Like, here's the rest of the show. We I'm would done. 100% be murdered. I'm done. <laughs> yeah, that would be uncalled for. No, don't even post. Like, don't tell anyone what <laughs> you're talking about. Just stop posting. Just ghost. Just <laughs> ghost. <laughs> Deactivate my own Facebook page. Get off of Twitter and just Instagram. Disappear from the I'm world. unplugging, guys. I need a break. <laughs> Woof. We come back like seven years later, like number 25. <laughs> Man, that's that's pretty brutal. Sorry. We won't do that. We would lose a lot of goodwill, I think, Ew, if we did that. Probably. But uh, probably. we also lose a lot of goodwill for putting, uh, you know, uh, Long and Winding Road back in the mid, you know, 200s. So. Speaking of. <laughs> Especially from our guest this week. Yes. He has so, strong feelings about that. He does. I feel like we're going to talk about him. Um, so... Uh, also, while we're recording this introduction, our dogs are in the room, so you may hear JoJo is panting. He's He pants. Do you have something to say, pal? He's a very excitable dog. And now he's quiet. <laughs> um, so anyhow, we're excited. Our guest this week, uh, we're actually interviewing him in our house today. Yes. Uh, here in Ranking the Beatles World Headquarters. We are all vaccinated. Yeah. And felt safe about being indoors together. Yeah. So also the weather's nasty. So like we decided yes. like as good a time as any to make the jump. Yeah. We live in New Orleans, so it's officially hot now. Yeah. It's hot and it rains and uh, yeah, it's miserable. Welcome to the, the surface of the sun plus rainstorms. What, what are we like the northernmost Caribbean city? Is yeah. that what they call us? Yeah. So it's just basically like a hot rainforest <laughs> here. <laughs> it's real swampy. It's real swampy. It's disgusting. Yeah. So I'm excited about it because this guy that we have today 
is uh, one of the you know bigger names in the New Orleans music scene over the last 30 years. I think it's safe to say. Uh, he cut his teeth in early 80s New Orleans new wave scene, uh, and then in Greenwich Village uh, writing folk songs. And in the early 90s, he co-founded the rock band Cowboy Mouth, uh, in which he was a singer, songwriter, and guitarist. Uh, the band hit the charts in the late 90s with radio singles like Jenny Says uh, and songs like Light It On Fire and How Do You Tell Someone. Now, at the same time, uh, our guest kept up a steady output of solo albums. Uh, then in 2007, he left the band to concentrate on his solo work. And because the world is a very strange and small place, especially in New Orleans, I was the musician that ended up joining that band uh, to assume the role of rhythm guitar player uh, for the next three years. And funny enough, I'd never met our guest before at that point. However, when I did leave that band in 2010, the first night I was back home from the last tour that I'd done with the band, uh, Julia and I walked into the mother-in-law lounge uh, here in New Orleans, and who happened to be right there inside the door standing there having a drink? But our guest today, Mr. Paul Sanchez. Uh, we introduced ourselves to each other, exchanged some war stories, and we've been buddies ever since then. We've collaborated musically, uh, we've hung out socially, we're in this nice little weird fraternity of people that were in that band and have left that band, which there's a lot of us. Um, so since he left the band, he's been nothing if not prolific. He's written a musical uh, based on the New York Times bestselling book, Nine Lives. Uh, he was awarded Songwriter of the Year by Offbeat Magazine five times. Not too shabby. He's released like a hundred solo albums. I mean, it's not a hundred, but it's a lot. Um <laughs> Uh, he appeared as himself in several episodes of HBO's show Treme a few years ago. Uh, he's written songs for artists like Darius Rucker, the Eli Young Band, Irma Thomas, and writer Tim Summer of the Brooklyn Observer uh, has called him America's greatest living folk singer, which is high, high praise. Uh, his 19th solo album, so that's how many he's released, 19, um, <laughs> is, uh, is the recent uh, I'm a Song, I'm a Story, I'm a Ghost, which I think came out... Um, End of nineteen, end of twenty, I think, just before uh, COVID. No, that uh, would be end of nineteen. Oh God, end of nineteen. Yeah, I right. know because we've been through Time more than a year of no this. Meaning. Yeah, it's very confusing because yeah. you think like the end of the last year. It's very confusing. Yeah, but end of nineteen would have been the end of the year before COVID. Correct. Yeah. Um, and then he recently released his fantastic nineteen ninety two solo debut, Jet Black and Jealous, on limited edition vinyl which you can only get through LouisianaMusicFactory.com or at Louisiana Music Factory if you're here in New Orleans. Um, I think it's also available to stream and uh, mm -hmm. listen to uh, online in various places. And now he hosts a YouTube-based video podcast uh, with producer and musician Mike Mayu called Another Cup of Coffee. It's fantastic. Uh, three days a week, they hop on... Uh, they hop on the YouTubes and they chat and tell war stories from the music business. It's a good, good time. Um, they always have a fun guest on there. Um, so let's go ahead and, uh, and cut to this wonderful interview with Mr. Paul Sanchez. Paul, how are you, my friend? Pleasure to I see you. I am fantastic. How are you? Good. Welcome. Did you say San Fantastic? <laughs> yeah. That's spectacular. Well, you know, it's from On Golden Pond. The movie uh, "You're Too Young," I but it was a great, that was a great movie in the uh, '80s with Henry Fonda and Jane Fonda. It was the last film he made. He actually won an Oscar for it, and she accepted the Oscar because he was too ill. He was home Aww. in bed, too ill to attend. Uh, but it was about the troubled relationship between a father and a daughter, mm. and he was a cranky old guy, you know. And mm -hmm. 
and it was great because they had a troubled relationship in real life, so mm -hmm. there was some real stuff going on there. But whenever somebody would say, how are you? He was an old guy, and he would say, San Fantastic. I love it. That's such <laughs> a great phrase. My whole life. Fantastic. I love that. That is great. That's great. That's so cute. <laughs> well, good to see you. Welcome back to the show. It's Glad good to be back at the podcast, although I have to and tell you, you know, there are now? times when I have to tune out of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you're not alone. Not alone. You took on a daunting task. Yeah. Uh, from the beginning, the biggest Beatles fans I knew chimed in with, wow, this is going to be really tough. Mm -hmm. And you proceeded to uh, ruffle the feathers of every oh, yeah. Beatles fan I know. <laughs> I've yet Mostly to find me. one who agrees with most anything. Oh, there are like do. entire weeks where I just, I, Joe, I don't even want to read his Facebook page today. <laughs> because I'm going to wind up commenting and I have a personal pledge not to shit on somebody else's Facebook page. <laughs> mighty, uh, mighty nice of you, though. I used to do it all the time. Sure. Because you know, man, I don't agree, and it's I'm going to say. And then I realize, hey, man, this is my virtual page. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm just going to have people that agree with me. Right. And anytime somebody would say something crappy or negative, I just delete it. Later, they write me and say, "Why'd right? you delete it?" And I'd go, "Because it was negative and crappy." I got this. Well, you can't do that. I'm your friend. Well, yes, I can because it's my page. <laughs> And it's a virtual friendship. <laughs> if, if this was real life, I'd have to listen to you spot off some nonsense and offer to buy you one more beer before I got out of here and told my wife what a jerk you were. But in the virtual world, I can just delete you. <laughs> so good. There's no that like is the benefit of Facebook. Is you can just oh, be yeah. like, oh, no, I don't like this, and I don't want to see oh, it. Oh, I had an old delete. friend that really said something offensive during the last campaign, and I deleted it. And he wrote to me privately and said, you have no right to delete me. And I said, I absolutely do. It's a virtual page. I can delete whoever I want. In fact, they have a delete button for that very reason. Right. And he wrote back and said, this is about a lifelong friendship, and I'm going to put what I want on your page. And I said, check out this feature. And I blocked him. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. It's like, no, you can't put whatever you want on my page. No, you can put you whatever can't. you want on your page. Uh, whatever you want. Yeah. You want to tell the world that you're like a blatant racist full well, of Whatever. You want ideas? to tell the world that you're sure, sick. Whatever that. you need yeah, to tell the world. Mean. But don't do it in my world. Yeah. No, no. No, no. <laughs> See yourself out. Don't come on. See yourself out of my world. <laughs> don't come on ranking the Beatles page and tell us that... Uh, the Stones are better than the Beatles. Well, don't even get me started on those people. <laughs> yeah. Wait, did that happen? No, but that's oh, that's a like, whole did I miss something? that's a whole conversation. Oh. The Beatles versus you Stones. know the Beatles are they're, they're so they're such an, an iconic thing. Mm -hmm. You know, I was producing an artist once who actually like was a younger artist than me. Well, everybody's younger than me, <laughs> and the artist said, "Listen, I don't want any of your Beatles crap Ooh. on this record. Ooh. I want modern." influences like oasis janice joplin and Jimi hendrix Wait, and i what? was dumbfounded <laughs> i didn't know what to, i was like first of all oasis are the beatles just younger also oasis and uh, they're a 25 year old band like <laughs> yeah and janice and jimmy were contemporaries of the beatles so i don't i don't know where both to take have been dead for way longer than oasis were yeah. ever around the product the record went downhill from there yeah Ooh, after very... tell me who this was i'm dying after the show i, I might dying to know yeah, I don't know that I would be able to reply to that either. I would just be like... I well, you know, I was hanging out with Jamar Allen one day, uh, and uh, I, and, there was, and Michael Cerverus and, and Kimberly Kay from Loose Cattle. Michael, former guest of the show. And uh, a young friend of Michael's was there. I guess we were rehearsing. I don't know what we were doing at Michael's place. But we were, and the younger... The, the friend of Michael's goes, oh, you know, I was listening to Kanye West, and... You know, somebody told me that something about the Beatles, and Kanye is so much cooler than the Beatles. 
And I just went, I don't even know where to start with that. Yeah. I don't know how to talk to you. <laughs> and Shimon was like, Uncle Paul, you got to admit, Kanye a genius, you know, and, and, and the Beatles. And I was like, Shimon, I love you. But the Beatles invented the things on four track that Kanye is never doing even dreamt tools. of doing. Yeah. He's, he's got computers doing it for him. Mm-hmm. But he didn't see it. He didn't, you know, didn't want to see it. The Beatles are old white guys. And Kanye had, at the time was young and hip. I don't know what he thinks of him now because Kanye is quite mad. But, uh, what I, all I said was, I looked at Shamar and said, man, you love him, you give him all your knowledge, you send him out into the world, and they come back and they just hurt you. They just hurt you. I love um, when that song came out a couple years ago, uh, four or five seconds, Kanye West and Rihanna featuring Paul McCartney. Yeah. And there was this whole thing of people on, on Twitter and, and you know, Facebook and all these younger folks going, who's this old guy that Kanye is, you know, featuring, like how cool of him to give this struggling old guy his break. finally. <laughs> it's like, wait, what? And the way that that track came about is, uh, is, is amazing. Like apparently, you know, Paul had gotten word that he was interested in working together. So he, they were hanging out in the studio and they're just talking and just shooting the shit. Um, and Paul's just kind of playing ideas, and Kanye has his phone on the table the whole time oh my recording. God. And at some point, he was like, cool, man, thanks for coming. Like, let's stay in touch. Paul's like, oh, okay, cool, leaves. And then a few weeks later, he gets like, hey, what do you think of this track? And he had taken, like, a five-second loop of Paul playing guitar from this phone and then looped that and tuned it, and that was the hook of the song. That's incredible. And, yeah, like, it was never like, let's sit and write a song or let's let's – produce a track that's, together. that's really that's that's much more how the younger artists work yeah you know um i've done that with shamar where it's like you know lay down eight bars of a guitar part and i'll just do the rest or, yeah uh, i worked with uh, fats domino's grandson once chevis brimmer really talented young man mm-hmm. and he said you know would you come by and lay down a guitar part and i said okay so he like gives me a chord chart and he runs the track and by the second verse, I sort of had the groove, and I, I, was, I was cool, and I played the song out. And I said, okay, let's do another pass. That was a great you know, first pass, and I got it by about the middle third. you know. And he went, oh, no, I'll just, I'll just take that good section and just fly it through. It. <laughs> and I just started laughing. I was like, that's, you know, that's, and that's music to them. Yeah. That counts. That's, that's, that's a valid language. I, I just was talking. I have, a, a, I have a, not a podcast, because I've, the idea of a podcast was far too complicated for my old brain to digest. <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, I have a friend who has a podcast called Beyond Bourbon Street, Mark Bologna. Mm-hmm. And he's been after me for years to do a podcast. He even got with me a couple of times over beers to show me how to do it. And it just, it just boggles my non-tech mind. Sure. Uh, but Mike Mayhew uh, said, why don't we do this on YouTube and it'll be like a live thing. So mm-hmm. we do this thing called Another Cup of Coffee. And uh, we were talking about... Uh, this, this, these very topics that, mm-hmm. that we broach here now. Yeah, which I've I've watched a few episodes. I'm usually working when y'all come on. I'm always like, oh, God damn. well, you know, it stays. It's on my YouTube channel. It does. You can watch I, it at your convenience. Yeah, I've, I've backtracked and watched a few, and it, it's quite enjoyable because it's you know, it's two guys who, you know, your relationship and your history together is obvious uh, in the way that you talk with each other and like the ease of the conversation. So it's fun to just watch, you know. Two really clever people just kind of, you know, yeah. You know, we had one rule was that, like, we can talk about anything but religion and politics. Yeah. Because we don't want people fighting. We wanted a place 
and and that everything was for laughs. Yeah. You know, what we're doing is for like, we had Craig Klein on because he had just won a Grammy. And one of my friends was like, oh, you know, something about you think you're great having a guy on with a Grammy. And I'm like, I don't have a Grammy. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, I'm making fun not of my, my Mike and I were making fun of ourselves for not having Grammys. <laughs> right. You know, like, you know I've, uh, once, just it's all perspective in the music business, as you well know. Oh, for sure. You know, uh, Cowboy Mouth, as you know, from having been in, uh, worn the ball and uh, what, what does Rob Savoy call it? Worn the bell. Uh, uh, somebody asked him once, you were in Cowboy Mouth? He goes, yes, I've worn the bell. Because back in the <laughs> days the of the bell. bubonic plague, if you had the plague, you had to wear a cowbell oh, around your you neck see? and they could hear you coming. <laughs> so Rob said, yes, I've worn the bell. <laughs> but, uh, but we were on the tour bus once and Mark Bryan, Hootie, uh, Hootie and the Blowfish's guitar player, their second record had just come out. And the first record sold 20 million copies. Mm-hmm. one of the biggest selling debuts in the history of rock and roll. And they were kind enough to share that ride. They got us our record deal. They took us on big tours. So he came on the tour bus, and he's bummed out. I go, what's wrong, man? And he goes, ah, man, second record's a flop. It only sold seven million so far. I'm like, seven million. So it's a multi-platinum record. You've gone multi-platinum. We've gone lint. We've actually <laughs> sold lint. You know, so, you know, it's all perspective. Yeah, you yeah know. for yeah. sure. And, uh, I sold zero records. <laughs> None. But, <laughs> but you've inspired several. Oh. That I think. There you go. Aww. Yeah. Aww. Sweet. <laughs> you guys are you. always so sweet. <laughs> oh, thanks, man. It's, I like you. It's disgusting. <laughs> it's lovely. It's lovely. Um, Mark will be on the show in a few weeks, actually. I'm very excited to have him on. Really? Yeah. I've, I've been wanting to ask him on another cup of coffee, well, as a matter of fact, to promote it was, his record. It was funny. I'd, I'd reached out to the publicist for another artist that's coming on. And as I was going through, you have a publicist. No, I was looking at this oh. other artist publicist <laughs> website. We are not fancy <laughs> yeah. here at Ranking the Beatles. <laughs> uh, but I noticed on their page, as they listed artists that they work with, Mark Bryan. I was like, oh, okay. By the way, I know Mark really well. Like, you know, I would love to have him on. You know, hit him, and so it just made. Yeah, it I'm, I'm going to just go to him directly because, you know, Mike Mayu has recorded him before. He yeah. knows yeah. Mike, and he knows me, and it's just a. It's really just for a laugh. Yeah. You know, I just I tell everybody that comes on, we're just trying to make each other laugh because the pandemic has been so hard emotionally, particularly on my single friends. Mm-hmm. Like you're lucky sure. enough to sit here with the woman you love. And, you know, my wife uh, works for Auctioner and, and she's been working from home three days a week. So we've had a lot of time together, but it's been tough on my single friends. You know, yeah. we're, we're past a year. We talk about a year of the pandemic, but it's not. It's mm-hmm. It's well past a year. And so Mike and I thought, Let's just try and make each other laugh. Yeah. And maybe whoever tunes in will laugh too. And so far, people are laughing. Yeah. You know, and that's great. And it mostly, like my, the listeners or watchers have said, it feels like I'm eavesdropping on two old friends having coffee. Yeah, and that's, that's what it's supposed exactly to be. That's exactly how it feels. I love that. Because since it. we can't get together and have coffee, was the idea let's do it virtually and yeah. let's let people share. Beautiful. Sure. And that's kind of the, the goal that we aim for with this. And I was talking about this with, um, some folks we did a show with yesterday. Uh, our goal is to kind of, you know, stimulate the, simulate the same conversation of just like friends in a pub or in a bar having this same kind of debate and with discussion about Beatles. With the added goal of, of goading Beatles fans yeah. into arguments <laughs> with your ranking of songs. Right. Like The Long and Winding Road, Beneath Octopus's Garden. Yes. <laughs> beneath Wild Honey Pie, which hasn't come yet. Which, oh, my God. <laughs> I can't even. Uh, <laughs> uh, but like sorry, these, that was genuinely horrified response. 
<laughs> it was, I, I had the presence of mind to back off the mic. But that was a genuinely horrified response. Sometimes move. I laugh right into the mic. And when he's like, he'll edit on the couch next to me. And like, I'll be watching TV and he'll have like the can, the ear cans on. And then I can hear myself laughing. I, I'm still digesting wild honey pie. <laughs> Hasn't come up yet. <laughs> Oh, man. I, I can't wait to explain that one. Oh, my god! Youth is wasted on the young. <laughs> I'm sorry, Paul. I'm sorry. <laughs> well. I feel bad. I feel bad that you're stressing people out. <laughs> I do, too. <laughs> I feel bad. Well, his, his love is sincere, and that comes through. His love of the, uh, of the genre, of the Beatles. In fact, I've always said, like, working with you is just a joy in the studio because you – it's like bringing an encyclopedia of pop music into the studio. Oh, thanks, I'll man. say, I want this. I, yeah, I remember we were making a record for, uh, I believe it was Jenna Guidry, and I was yeah. like, I need a 30-second guitar solo, you know, and, or an eight-bar guitar solo, and you were like, something like this? or not, No, it wasn't even a solo. I need a 30-second guitar part yeah. to, to bridge these, and you went something like this? I'm like, yeah, that's exactly what I'm looking for. <laughs> yeah, because I was like, I didn't do it. I, can't, I couldn't have done a 30-second solo. <laughs> no, it was really, it was a little part that yeah, just bridged just little, the song, and yeah. I was just like, wow, that's that's... So yeah, and then your 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 sense of harmonies, everything about working with you, and your knowledge of the Beatles long before this came up, I was impressed with how much you knew about their music, their recording, um, especially because you're you know what twenty years younger than me. Yeah, somewhere in there. Yeah, somewhere in there. <laughs> I think some, yeah, no, somewhere in there. I can't be that. How old much. are you? I'll be, I'm thirty nine. I'll be forty in November. Okay, so yeah, you're twenty years younger than yeah. me. I'm I'm sixty one. Ah, I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. I was like, no, there's no way there's that much difference. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thinking that you were In fact, you younger. know, in Cowboy Math, right, in my last, like, it was a joke for years. We'd always have these young bands opening up, and they'd mm -hmm. say, so how long have you been in the business, man? And I'd say, oh, I've been in business forever. I was in Buddy Holly's band, and we'd all laugh. <laughs> and then right before I quit, there was this young band from Nashville, the Aces or something, opening up for us, and they were like 19 and 20 years old. And they go, so how long have you been in the business, man? And I go, I've been in business a long time. I was in Buddy Holly's band. They look at each other all big on the I was in Buddy Holly's band. <laughs> and I looked at Griffin. I went, that joke's not fucking funny anymore, man. <laughs> well, he was talking about, we recorded a podcast yesterday with our friends, uh, El Vanillo. They have another, uh, that's the name of their podcast. Um, and it's three friends in Liverpool. And nice. they're, they're such a treat. They're so funny. We love. They've been on our show. We've been on their show. Nice. And we got together to discuss Alanis Morissette's "Jagged Little Pill," which came out in 1995. Um, and one of the hosts, Grace, they there's a a sizable age difference between us and them. They're much younger than us. Grace was a fetus in 1995, <laughs> and I was like, I was a snarling teen. <laughs> We were like 14 and 15, and she's like, I wasn't even born yep. yet. Really. She's like, I was still a See if they know a band oh. called Shimona. Okay. It's uh, my friend Pete Riley, uh, who was in a band called Treehouse that was on Hootie and the Blowfish's record label. Okay. And they were from Liverpool. And since Hootie had taken us on tour and gotten us our major label deal, mm -hmm. we paid Hootie back a favor by bringing the band that was on their record label and letting them open for us. Cool. Much smaller venues, but we still, sure. we know, we had our thousand seaters or whatever. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was a thrill to tour with the band from Liverpool. Yeah. yeah. Just the accents alone. Yep. I mean, they uh, had me. I was yeah. like a puppy dog following them. And then the guitarist, Keith Thomas, was an amazing flamenco guitarist. Mm -hmm. So he played with me on my solo sets every night because I was opening for the opening band with solo sets at the time. 
And then Pete Riley was such an amazing electric guitar player. He went on to be Edwin McCain's lead guitar oh, player. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. For years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Treehouse, their band Treehouse has recently had a resurgence where they're, somebody's making videos of their old songs and stuff. Cool, so okay. ask him about Treehouse and Shimona. Because, okay. I mean, if they're from Liverpool, they got to know both of them. Yeah. And they're all, they're all musicians, too, so... They, yeah. they may well know. How old? Like, because his son's like 23-ish. They're about the same. Uh, 23, 24, 25. Oh, they uh, got to know each other. Adam's 23, I think. Yeah. Um, he's a manager now. He's a manager. <laughs> I think they're all about 20, in that 23 he, to 25 yeah. area. That's like, awesome. Like, they're younger than us, but we just connected through podcasting. Yeah, you know, I recorded yeah. with uh, in Liverpool at Par Street yeah. Studios, and the engineer was very young as well. Mm-hmm. So it was, it, was, it, was a, it was great. I mean, I'm, I'm obviously still in love with... Uh, the Beatles myth. Yeah. You know, for, for a kid who lost his father to have the story of Lennon and McCartney, you know, the, both of them lost Losing their mothers parents, and yeah. George had lost his father. And they were these kids from shattered families mm-hmm. who found each other and music and, and to conquer the world. Yeah. It was, and, and they were from a port city mm-hmm. where the records came in by the sailors. It was so similar yeah. that it was intoxicating in my youth, and, mm-hmm. and I loved it my whole life, and I still do. Yeah. You know? It was one of the things we talked about with them yesterday was like the joke that, like, you know, older people always, they're always, oh, well, I was in, you know, I went to grade school with John, and, you know, I had a pint with him at the Graves one time. He was a great guy. Like, every older person has, like, some story about, like, you know, <laughs> Paul McCartney's my uncle's. Uh, best friend, or well, like. actually, you know, Pete Riley. His dad was in a band when, when mm-hmm. he was a kid, and he played in the Cavern Club. Yeah. Same time the Beatles were playing there. Yeah. You know? Yeah. At the time, they weren't big yet, and they mm-hmm. were just another, you know, Liverpool band. He said they were great, but they were just playing the Cavern Club like everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm sure there are people that have that legitimate story, but there's not like, I don't know. 20,000 people don't right. have that story, yeah. but 20,000 right. people claim to have that story. Right. <laughs> and they're like, not all of you. Yeah. Nope. Right. It's like everyone in New Orleans of a certain age is like, oh man, I went and got hammered with cowboy mouth one night. Like, they probably didn't, but. Well, <laughs> there's a good chance have. they did, really. There's a really good chance. Gods are high. Especially in the early days. Yeah. You know, like, because we were so happy to be popular, man. Yeah. You know, like, I remember the first time I pulled mm-hmm. up to Tipitina's where there was a line around the block. And I was, I walked up to the doorman. I said, so is there a band playing before us? Is there somebody on right now? And the guy <laughs> laughed. He goes, no, man, it's for you. You naive And I just couldn't baby. believe it. Like, I yeah. thought there must have been some big national act that was playing there that had a line, and they were going to clear them out for our show. Aww. <laughs> so, you know, it was, it was, it was fun times. It, yeah. was, it was good stuff. What a treat to, like, show up and realize that there's a whole line of people for you. The first times it started happening, it was, like, Atlanta at the Roxy. You yeah. know, and there's people out front scalping tickets. It was all – the ride was, was pretty lovely. I mean, you know, we personally know – the. That there were thing, ways it could have been better. Sure. You know, the c- creative generosity that was there in the early days when Steve Walters was in disappeared when we got our major label deal. Mm-hmm. The stakes were higher and managers were doing what managers do yeah. in trying to divide band members. And uh, sadly, it worked uh, to a degree that made it a different band. Mm-hmm. The early days, the best songs made the records and the best singers sang them. Usually... It was Fred, but still the songs were mine or Griff's or whoever's, whoever had written the song that was working. Mm -hmm. And that changed with business. And that's, you know, you and I both know way too much about it to talk about on a fun podcast. (laughs) If we ever get on a really bitchy podcast. (laughs) 
Well, like, speaking about, you know, who sings the songs and which songs end up on albums, like, Jonathan picked up your Jet Black and Jealous vinyl recently, and, like, the number of those songs that were, like, crossed over onto yeah. Calumet albums, I'm just like, ah, oh, it just took me back. Like, because, you know, I was a, I was a teen listening to those, uh, you know, in New Orleans, as you do. Uh, and it was just, like, so nice to hear those again, but, like, a little bit different, you know? Nice. And I'm just like, oh, it just... It was such like a nice, warm, fuzzy feeling of like youth and energy. Yeah. <laughs> like after living through a pandemic and feeling tired as shit all the time, it was nice. It to was like really fun hear. to release that on vinyl because, yeah. you know, like when I was living in New York trying to get signed, uh, Fred was in Dash Rip Rock mm-hmm. and they had gotten signed and, and put out their first album. So I remember being in Tower Records and Vance was in House of Shock. Huh. And Fred was in Dash, and they both had new records out. Uh, House of Shock was Gina Shock from the Go Go's band, mm-hmm. and uh, so I remember like looking at my two buddies' albums, and and I'm just in New York trying to get a break, you know, and yeah. just thinking like, man, I want an album so bad. And then I got signed, and it was the end of albums. So Jet Black and Jealous <laughs> came out on CD and cassette, but it never came out on an album. And it sounds great, though. I will say, like for something that you probably wasn't produced with for the medium of vinyl in mind, it was. Made on a four-track Tascam cassette recorder. Sounds great. I've got one right up there. Wow. <laughs> Sounds great. Sounds fantastic. I went to the engine. Well, because the woman uh, who signed me said, you know, that's the record I want to put out. And I was like, well, that, you know, it's made on a Tascam Those cassette recorder. <laughs> she goes, the guy singing the song sounds like he believes no one's ever going to hear him. And you'll never capture that feeling again. Yeah. So that's the record I want to put out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I went to an engineer named Richard Bird, who passed away just last year. Great guy. And I said, Richard how much of this tape hiss can you get rid of? And he just smiled and took a big hit out of his joint and went, all of it, brother. <laughs> <laughs> and he did. Nice. And I, I thought I thought you'd lost the masters for that in Katrina. I did. Uh, so that record was made. Mike Mayhew mastered it off of the CD. Okay. Okay. Uh, when I released it on CD, mm-hmm. and then he mastered it again uh, for the vinyl release. Nice. Well, it sounds great. It's a fantastic listen. Um, Thank you. And like you said, it, it, you know, it reminds me of, you know, a younger time when when that music for me, you know, lived in a different place. Yeah, uh, that wasn't, you know, tainted by by time and yeah. experience and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, career moves that, you know, well, you know it's you funny, and I have though, gone through a, fr- a fan from Texas uh, wrote to me and said that she was getting rid of a giant. Are you with me poster? And mm-hmm. did I want it? So I said, sure. You know, I have a couple of old posters that I keep in my poster room, you yeah. know. And, but it arrived, and it wasn't the album cover, which I thought it was going to be. It was the poster of Fred on top of a speaker at Tipitina's with like a thousand people yeah. in front of him. And so I called up our old manager, Stephen Klein, who had managed us and got us our major record, major label deal. I said, I have a present for you. Mm-hmm. And I brought it to him, and he, I, unbeknownst to me, he had lost all his memorabilia in the flood mm-hmm. in Katrina. Mm. So he teared up, and he said, Paul, this is amazing. And, and then he went, and you know what? It's going to be a really long time before anything like that photo can even happen again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, a guy yeah. reaching out to a 1,000 people in front of him in a mm-hmm. crowded nightclub. Yeah. So it was, it was pretty... We got to we got to be a part of the end of rock and roll. Yeah, 
you know. <laughs> For sure. The heart of rock and roll is not still beating, by the way. <laughs> it's uh, intubated right now. It's, oh, yeah. Wah, wah. Ouch. <laughs> but it never dies. There's always some young rock band, some punk that's going to rebel against the computers and it's going to fucking plug in his guitar mm-hmm. and crank like uh, Ben Perrine. Yeah. You know, just plug it in and crank it up and let rip with some rock and roll. It's yeah. going to happen because every generation, as Paul Simon once sang, sends a new star up the pop charts. Yep. Yeah. Very true. Very true. Wouldn't that be great if Ben Perrine saves us all? <laughs> <laughs> ben, you're probably not listening, but your mother may be. Uh, go ahead and, and save us, you're, you're our one true hope. <laughs> save us, Ben Perrine. You're our only hope. If anyone could. <laughs> save us, Obi Ben Perrine. <laughs> well, I want to uh, jump into some Beatles conversations. Um, and I know last time we kind of talked about just like how the Beatles loom in your world as in, as an inspiration um as you know just a as a player and a musician i want to look a little more uh a little more specifically as far as songwriting uh today um and one of the things i'm thinking about is i know like in conversations we've had um i feel like as a writer you're very much kind of like a, a lenin guy and you're very much a wordsmith like in your own writing like lyrics seem to be like kind of the bread and butter of what you what you do um, so if early Beatles and early John make you want to like pick up a guitar and like do the thing, um, where does John as a writer take hold for you? Um, and what kind of impact does that have on you in your songwriting? Um, I loved everything about him as a writer. I loved his journey mm-hmm. as a writer because much like myself, I, well, he was way more educated than I was, to be quite honest. I mean, I was a college dropout. I think he made it that far, too. But his songs went from he was a, he was a primitive, a self-described primitive on guitar mm-hmm. and as an artist, as was I. And so his songs went from Moon and June, as he used to say, to really beautiful uh, Lewis Carroll-esque poetry. Yeah. Some would say Dylan-esque, but he was a fan of Lewis Carroll and the absurdist in England long before he was a fan of uh, Dylan. Mm-hmm. He was a, in, in his childhood. And, and that incorporated into his lyrics. And then as he matured, the precursor to his solo career writing was I Want You, She's So Heavy. Mm-hmm. Because it's the most direct song he'd written. And in an interview, somebody asked him, you know, well, this isn't one of your you know, really literal Lenin kind of songs, you know. And he goes, look, when you're drowning, you don't say, I'd be awfully in, uh, in, indebted to you if you'd throw me a lifeline with a life raft attached so I could climb aboard and save my life. You say, fucking help! Right. <laughs> and that's where I was. You know, yeah. I want you. She's so heavy. That's where I was. But then he incorporated, his, his lyrics became in, increasingly sparse mm-hmm. and more personal and more direct about his life, which intrigued me, the honesty of it. Um, I think because early on I knew that I was never going to be the best guitar player and I was never going to be the best singer, but I could strive to be the most honest songwriter mm-hmm. I could be and the most honest singer I could be. And if I was honest enough, I could touch people because honesty was real. Mm-hmm. And when his last interview with Playboy in 1980, he said, somebody asked, the interviewer asked him, what do you think of Bruce Springsteen? Because he just had a hit on the river with uh, Hungry Heart. And Lennon's answer was, I don't know what to think of him yet. So far, he's written a lot of fun songs about chasing girls and driving in cars, and that's great. But what's he going to do when he gets older and he gets married and has kids? And how's he going to incorporate that into his songwriting and, and his maturity as an artist? If I, if I can 
hear those songs in a few years, I'll let you know what I think of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he didn't live to see it, but I've often wondered if Springsteen read that interview and picked up the gauntlet he threw down because yeah. his songs certainly became less about chasing girls and driving cars and more about the search for love and the search for the anchor and the family. And and what's his next record after that? Was it Nebraska? Where did he go after the That's river? That's a good question. Um, let's see. Lennon died in 80, and his next record was indeed Nebraska. So he's got that, that. It's almost like his Plastic Ono band. It is. His, like Real, his, I never thought about that before. Yeah. That's very much his Plastic It makes you wonder if he band. did read that interview and was like... Man, I, I somebody has, somebody always asked me if you could ask Bruce Springsteen anything, you know, what would you? I'd ask him, did you read that interview? Yeah. Because I have to know, did it influence your songwriting? Yeah. Just like with Paul Simon, I'd have to know. He had to know what he was doing when he wrote American Tune. Mm-hmm. American Tune is based on a 16th century melody by the first priest of the Knights Templar. <laughs> and the lyrics were written by a priest of the Knights Templar. Uh-huh. The original song is called, O Sacred Head Now Wounded. And it refers to the head, the severed head of John the Baptist, because in, in Templar mythology, John the Baptist was the true savior and Jesus was the pretender, the usurper. And that's why there's such a debate as to whether the Vatican has Templar secrets that they will never let out kind of thing. Oh, wow. And so Paul Simon writes, he uses the exact melody. Oh, sacred head now wounded is the same exact melody as American tune, but he changes the lyrics. But the lyrics are specifically Masonic imagery. And the Freemasons are the huh. descendants of the Knights Templar, the Statue of Liberty, flying a ship around the moon, all that stuff. It's, mm-hmm. it's quite fascinating. So if I ever got to ask Paul Simon anything, yeah. it would be, was that on purpose? That's wild. Because if not, that's an amazing coincidence. That's <laughs> wild. Uh, and it's funny that, you, that we've rounded back to Springsteen because the episode I watched the other day of Another Cup of Coffee, you tell the story of you and John Thomas running, in, running into Springsteen at Tipitina's and having that like – you got to say something. No, you say something. No, you say something. It was such a classic <laughs> moment. It's an empty Tipitina. It's so good. And it's me and Griff at the bar. It's, you know, late at night on a Monday. Nobody's there. And Bruce has gone backstage to say hello to the Swingin' Haymakers, uh, Bill Davis and uh, Kim Davis and their country band they had at the time. Mm-hmm. And so now he's coming out and there's nobody there. And, and Griff elbows me in the ribs. He goes, say something, dude. dude. And I elbow him back. I'm, shut up, dude. And he elbows cool. me again. Say something, dude. And I go, shut up, dude. And Springsteen sees the commotion, and he stops and holds out his hand and smiles. And I just shook his hand and said, anything besides thank you would be superfluous. Oh, that's nice. Except for your one question. You missed your opportunity. And and Bruce went, (laughs) (laughs) and sauntered (laughs) off to the evening. (laughs) So so what about the White Album for you? Um, You know, what things do you take away from that album that, in a record that is so disjointed, but in so many perfect ways. Like it's so perfectly bizarre, you know, in everything that comes at it. I I love the white album. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, you have everything from vaudeville honey pie to Lennon's experimental revolution. Number nine, which, um, an ex of mine and I were listening to an acid once and totally flipped her out. She wanted to crawl out of a window. She was so frightened. Um, won't say which one. Um, <laughs> which window? Because <laughs> there are so many. <laughs> Windows indexes. <laughs> uh, but uh, so it's, it's kind of an amazing. I mean, think of a mainstream pop band doing a piece like Revolution Number no. 9 today. Yeah. It's, it's incredibly avant-garde. It's, it's, it's tape collage. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's wonderful. It's eerie and fascinating. And when you're a kid. It's terrifying. Terrifying. And Absolutely terrifying. <laughs> Absolutely. So I think it's a great album. And, and for years, I know there was debate about should they have cut 
Honey Pie, Wild Honey Pie, and mm-hmm. Revolution Number Nine, and done a single album that would have been as great as Sgt. Pepper. Right. You know, George Martin was one of the ones who said he wished they would have cut it down to one album, and it would have been one of the classic Beatle records. Mm-hmm. And I just always thought McCartney had the greatest answer to that ever. You know, they asked him about it, and he said, you know, I've heard the debate before. Should we have cut songs? And should we have not? It's, it's the bloody Beatles White Album. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm pretty sure it is a classic right? album. Like, like, it's it's the White Album. <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, I do have you a great story about the White, white. Album. <laughs> like, after, Kat- after Katrina, my friend John Boutte, one of the greatest singers in, alive and certainly one of the greatest ever in New Orleans, he called me just to make sure I was okay and... He, he said, baby, I'm in Asheville, North Carolina. I said, wow, how'd you wind up here? He said, well, a friend had a place, and so I'm up here just trying to you know, find my face. And he said, the CBS Records called, and they said they wanted me to do this record called The Social Club with Ivan Neville and George Port. I said, great, great. And he goes, yeah. He goes, well, they wanted me to sing Blackbird. I said, well, I know that. You know, black, pack up all my cats and bowls. Here I go, singing low. Get out of New Orleans, you fucking Blackbirds. <laughs> and, and they go, no, that's not the one we want you to do. We want you to do the Beatles' Blackbird. And he goes, well, I don't know that one. I'm going to have to go and buy the record and look it up and learn it. So he said, I went to the record store in Asheville, North Carolina. <laughs> and I said, I'd like to get Blackbird by the Beatles. And they go, that's on the White Album. He goes, Paul. The motherfucking white album. <laughs> so he sang Annie Lennox's Why. <laughs> That's fantastic. You know, but I did tell him that McCartney wrote that when he was watching the BBC about the, the little girls getting walked to, to school during segregation in mm-hmm. America. And he eventually learned the song and added it and does a gorgeous version of it. Did he ever cover it? He did yeah. cover it? Nice. He does a beautiful version Has of it. Has he recorded it's, it or is it just something he does in live I don't think shows? he's ever recorded it. Um, it was something that I knew how to play, so when yeah. we played together, we would play Just it. learned it, yeah. Nice. And I don't know if any of his guitar players ever learned it. Yeah. Interesting. Um, on the motherfucking, the motherfucking white album. White album. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Um, so what about the other Beatles in terms of, of writing influence? You know, I think style-wise, you know, Paul is also a great lyricist, but he's also like, he's the melody guy, you know? And, yeah. and George is a little bit of everything. You know, how do they, but George how do they is sit so, for you? He's such, he's such a much better songwriter than he gets credit for yeah. in Beatles uh, history because it took him a while. You know, George's uh, unfortunate luck was that he was in the band with two of the greatest songwriters who ever lived. Yeah. And along with being two of the greatest songwriters who ever lived, they had two of the biggest egos that ever lived. Sure, yeah. So it was tough for him to find space to breathe until after the band was over. But, you know, his writings, his contributions were always solid. See, for me, when, when people say who was the who was your favorite? Who was the best Beatle? Who, they were the Beatles. Yeah, yeah, they were the four of them had a chemistry and a symmetry that, in my opinion, was unmatched mm-hmm. in the history of rock and roll. They weren't the Beatles before Ringo joined. Yeah, and they w- would never be the Beatles again once John Lennon was dead. Mm-hmm. They had the good grace to know this and never try and be that. Yeah. All due respect to fans of The Who and The Stones and whoever you like, for me, there's a difference between a band and a brand. Yeah. Oh, God. And The Who is a brand. Yeah. And The Stones are a brand. Yeah. And You hear that, Mike Love? I'm not saying they didn't make great music <laughs> yeah. along the way. The Stones made some great records, but they weren't about being a band. They yeah. were about being a brand. Well, and it, that's it's funny because, you know, with our shared lineage, you know, I, you know, 
you leave Cowboy Mouth, I join, and now it's two pe- two original members, or really one. Uh, you know, you got Fred and John Thomas, and then myself and Regina, and it's a totally different world. It's a different band. It's a different uh, relationship, and it that that's where the idea of the band versus the brand becomes a whole different thing. You know, like yeah. and even you know me having you know being in that band having grown up watching that band was able to kind of step outside and go, this is not this, like this is not what it used to be. It's a different thing altogether. And you know, it's and so many that, bands and, go through and that. Not, again, that's okay. If you're yeah. a fan of that band sure. and that that's okay. I don't have anything against the who or the umpteenth version of the cowboy mouth or, or you yeah. know, the stones or whatever. For me, what I love about music is, that chemistry that's the, the Beatles had, um, the Clash had, mm-hmm. you know, and, and they, they, they did replace a drummer at one point, but then they brought him brought back, back, yeah, you know, when he got off of heroin. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And, and the drummer that played when he was on heroin was a great drummer, mm-hmm. probably better than Topper Heaton, but Topper had a thing was the guy. that worked. Yeah. Like when they played together, there was this thing. And, yeah. and, and that's, that's what I felt as a listener, and surely they felt as a band. Yeah. For instance, you know, when Fred and I were trying to do Cowboy Mouth, it wasn't working as a trio. John Thomas Griffith walked in, plugged in his Marshall, hit the first chord, and I jumped in the air for joy. Works. Yeah, it was that was a, that was the start of it. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know. And I think this is something where you know, staying with the White Album, you know, we recently discussed Birthday, um, and I compared it to back in the USSR, which I have. Uh, you know, multiple songs behind right. where we were with Birthday. Um, both songs I love. Uh, they just needed a home. Um, I think the difference between back in the USSR being like a great rock song versus Birthday being a great rock song is Ringo Starr's not on one of them. I was just going to say that's, that's and like, a huge difference. Paul's a functional drummer. He's, it's it, fine. Paul's, a, Paul's a fine drummer. Yeah. Just as he's a fine lead guitar player. Yeah. But Paul's a perfectionist. Yeah. So his playing is precision. Mm hmm. And there's a sloppiness to George's lead guitar playing and a sloppiness to Ringo's playing that is essential to the greatest Beatle tracks. Yes, yes. You know, the fact that Ringo was left-handed and had to come across his body to start drum fills made every drum fill different from any other drummer who ever did drum fill. So they were an essential... Again, we go back to it's the four of them. It's kept. It's, a, it's, it's the a four. And that's the thing about the White Album. The White Album was a, a peek into their solo albums mm-hmm. because there were several tracks where it was just them, like Lennon doing Julia. Yeah. You know, and Paul doing Why Don't We Do It in the Road. Yeah. You know, and that's cool. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's interesting. We're going to we're going to talk about Cry Baby Cry. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's interesting that the beginning of Cry Baby Cry was under the uh, with Jeff Emmerich as engineer. Yeah. And during the White Album sessions, they were so ugly with each other. I mean, Ringo quit, and George quit at one point, mm-hmm. and they were, Jeff Emmerich wrote in his book that they were just use, using the worst expletives, con- constantly cursing at each other, and cursing at George Martin. Yeah. And he just got sick of it, and he quit. And Lennon, with his you know usual tact, went to try and talk him into staying, and he says, Jeff, you can't leave us in the middle of a record, man. That just wouldn't be right. I mean, you've been with us since the beginning. And, and Sergeant Pepper, everyone says it's our best record, even though I think it's a load of rubbish. <laughs> like, shit. Great job of talking him into staying, right. John. Yes. 
Really great job. A pile yeah. of shit, right? Pile of, <laughs> what a good lord. Great job talking about this. But then the guy who came on... Uh, Ken Scott. He said that he didn't find that vibe at all. Yeah. He found that they were laughing and joking and creative. And you hear this throughout Beatle history. When Billy Preston was brought on board, mm-hmm. the Let It Be sessions went from them fighting and ugliness and everybody hating it to everybody on best behavior. Yeah. Because Lennon said whenever a new face came around, they all put on their best face and they were acting like company was there. Yeah. And they, <laughs> and they got along again. Yeah. You know, it's just like a marriage that had gone on too long yeah. and just needed to break up. Yeah. Man. Well, let's jump into this week's song, shall we? Coming in at number 171 is Cry Baby Cry. Cry Baby Cry Make your mother sigh She's old enough to know better The king of marigold was in the kitchen Cooking breakfast for the queen The queen was in the parlor playing piano for the children of the king Cry, baby, cry Make another sign She's old enough to know better So cry, baby, cry The king was in the garden Picking flowers for a friend who came to play So Cry, Baby, Cry appears to have started off its life towards the end of 1967. A year John had spent pretty well entrenched in a Lewis Carroll-esque psychedelic haze, gobbling as much acid as he could seemingly get his hands on. Uh, the song appears to have been finished up in early 68, possibly during the band's time in Rishikesh. When the band gather at George's Kinfon's bungalow to demo a new pile of songs, Cry Baby Cry is one of the first that John tackles that day, which indicates he must have some excitement about it. The band finally begin working on the song July 15th, following what engineer Jeff Emmerich recounts as a very tense period in the studio. Uh, the band spend the first evening running through the song a number of times with no real intent to track it, just playing with it and figuring out parts. Uh, the following day, citing the unpleasant atmosphere and saying that he just couldn't take it any longer, longtime engineer Jeff Emmerich quit working with the Beatles and engineer Ken Scott took his place. And, uh, and though a longtime crucial member of their studio team had left, the show must go on. So the band completes 10 takes of the song that day, uh, with number 10 being marked as the best take. So to this, they add George Hart, they they add George Martin's harmonium overdub, John's piano, uh, the Tea Party sound effects from the band. Then two days later, John adds double track vocals. George overdubs a guitar lead, and the second in the second verse, uh, John and Paula recorded whistling, uh, with one holding a note while the other descends, creating a part that's often been confused as an organ. Hmm. Um, additional piano, drums, and percussion are added later in September. So on October 16th, John and Paul participate in the band's longest studio session, just over 24 straight hours, uh, in which they decide and uh, finalize the running order and sequencing of the record. And during this session, they decide to add a segue between Cry Baby Cry and the next track, Revolution 9, uh, to make the transition into the world of the avant-garde. They add a snippet of an ad-lib track Paul put on tape in September uh, while tracking I Will, uh, called Can You Take Me Back? The song, of course, is released on side four of the White Album in November 68. Cry Baby Cry was never performed live by the band or any of its members in their solo careers. So why do I have Cry Baby Cry at 171? So Cry Baby Cry to me uh, marks the beginning of the creepiest 11 and a half minutes in the Beatles catalog. Um, I think it's actually kind of an overlooked track and one that's 
a bit more of a signpost than maybe it gets credit for. Uh, in 68, Lennon kind of enters into his reporting songwriting period, uh, where every song needs to be autobiographical, a true story, and eventually needs to be released as soon as possible after it's written. Uh, the imagery and wordplay that had been kind of his hallmark up until then takes a back a backseat to immediacy. And Cry Baby Cry, having started life in 67, seems to be the last gasp of that old writing style. Uh, the lyrics are this kind of dreamy royalty theme of bizarre kings and queens and creepy hiding children. Uh, and though there's no story arc to the song uh, to speak of, it's just kind of this look into this little world that he's singing about. Musically, it's built around this uh, rather creepy descending melody, uh, and much of the track has this kind of ghastly echo to it. Um, John sings in this really hushed voice and keeps adding this like intense vibrato that builds throughout the track. Um, the track itself has this real kind of opium downer kind of feel to it, I think. Uh, and that kind of matches where John's narcotic intake is heading at the same time as well. It's a dark track, and a lot of his work on the album has a kind of dark and dangerous feel to it. I do think it's really interesting, though, musically. Paul's bass part is incredibly imaginative and melodic and experimental. Uh, Ringo's drums are kind of like a sibling part to A Day in the Life. Um, the transition uh, with the Can You Take Me Back part uh, is kind of its own other creepy melody, which just kind of fades off into the black and really sets the scene for like the intense darkness that's about to come with Revolution 9. Not much to it as a song, but it's a great production move. Uh, to send the Beatles, send the listener off into whatever world they're about to find themselves in with Revolution 9. Uh, so that's my take on it. I open the floor, Paul. Um, I don't find it creepy. Mm -hmm. Lennon was doing what he had done with other songs, with uh, Strawberry Fields and with I'm the Walrus. He loved nursery rhymes. Yeah. And he'd done this since the beginning of his songwriting. He, he's one of those artists that he was always going to be a writer. He was always going to be a songwriter. His Please Please Me was based on a Disney song, you know, listen, Please Listen to My Please. Mm -hmm. And so this was based on, the lyrically anyway, was based on Sing a Song of Sixpence, Pocket Full of Rye, Four and Twenty Blackbirds Baked in a Pie, When the Pie Was Broken, The King Was in the Counting House, Counting Out His Money. It means straight line from the song. So I think that it's a gorgeous bit of wordplay. And like any writer, even though in like in 1980, when he was interviewed by Playboy, he said the song was rubbish, it didn't mean anything. Mm -hmm. But that's rubbish. Yeah. You know, as writers, <laughs> we know that we're always writing. Like, I remember I played a song from my friend Roger Manning once, Jet Black and Jealous, actually. Mm -hmm. And I thought I had written it about uh, my first ex. And Roger's a great songwriter and a brilliant lyricist. This is in New York back in the 80s. And he just looked at me as soon as he heard it. And he went... It's about you, right? And I started to correct him, and I realized, yeah, of course. Yeah. You know, how could I possibly write about anybody but me? Yeah. And so he's writing about himself. Not only that, but it's a theme he would return to again in his solo work mm -hmm. uh, with cleanup time. Cleanup time, yeah. The queen, king was in, queen was in the counting house. He counting flipped, all the counting money. out the money. The king was in the kitchen making bread and honey. And no that's funny because that's kind no of the enemies. relationship that he and Yoko had at that point. Where she's managing all their business right. and he's doing the house husband but thing. But he's still fascinated and instinctively returns to that nursery rhyme that obviously so entranced him as a child that he used it twice yeah. in his songwriting career. Now, I'm not, you know, I think that his reasons for calling it rubbish were probably exactly as you said. It was the last of his sort of fanciful lyrics and he moved on into more direct communication. Uh, 
in this interview with Playboy when they said, what are your favorites? It was Strawberry Fields and Help. It was the songs that are the most autobiographical, the yeah. most personal to him. So maybe he was just sort of distant himself from the fact that he was great at wordplay. I don't know. Yeah. Um, or maybe it, that domain belonged to Dylan so firmly by then that he, as a writer, knew he was strong enough to create a new persona and yeah. did. Yeah. I don't know. But I know that I think it's a gorgeous song. Mm-hmm. I've always loved it. Uh, and then getting to talk about it today was a ch- you know, get chance to listen to it again and to read about it and to, to realize, oh, wow, he did, in fact, like that theme enough. Whatever he thought in 1980, yeah. he had just finished recording practically a remake yeah, you know, of yeah. Cry Baby Cry with uh, Clean Up Time. Yeah. And the, the production on it, I don't think I really gave enough credit to, you know, before diving into it. I mean, as usual with like, the Beatles, it's it's deceptively, beautifully complex and layered. Yeah. It sounds like it's just a sort of thrown together thing with a little bit of bits of organ and acoustic guitar. But then when you listen, as you said, McCartney's bass line is incredibly creative. Oh, it's wild. And the arrangement is incredibly thought out, you know, down to sound effects and T noises mm-hmm. and stuff. They didn't, it was a, they were painting musical portraits. They yeah. were, they were true record. When you read the story of the song being recorded, you have to understand it's called recording artists for a reason. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I mean, I, I, again, I was I was producing a young artist, and I left the room, and I came back in, and they were like, oh, we got it. I was like, you got the vocal while well, in the time it took me to get a cup of tea? Yeah, well, how many takes did you get? Well, just one, but it was really great. And I was like, here's why they call it recording art. <laughs> because you don't want one take. That's what you want live. You want one great take live. If, if you know, as good as you can sing it live. But here we are in the studio, and you can sing it great five times, and then we can make a brilliant vocal for you mm-hmm. and it was an education for all of us yeah yeah <laughs> what do you think about it julia how do you feel about this one uh, you know i had never heard this song really before. yeah i wow. somehow completely just never came up at any point i really liked this song yeah, like okay. really really liked it um i i don't know if it's because like my ears are very tired from listening to so much surprisingly live music lately because your right. port shows have picked up a lot. Um, so I've been like hearing a lot of music lately. And the day that I did my sort of deep dive into this track, it was dreary and raining and sleepy and like a little bit chilly. And just all of that just made me like settle into the loveliness of this song. Nice. Because um, like – Everything is very sort of muffled in it. I don't know if that's like the right word. It's very like muted. A quiet uh, song. It's an understated yeah. performance. Yeah. Yeah. Like, in every way. Uh, like the, the drums sound very low. Like it's not like a tap. It's just like boom. Like it's, right. it's I don't know. It's like very I, gentle. I'm not a musician, so it's really hard for me to describe what I'm hearing. But now even down to his vocal, it's very gentle. Yeah. Like everything is just like very quiet and nice and subtle. Even though there's so much going on, yeah. nothing is too intense or too, like it's it's very even, and I don't know, like it was just so nice in my ears. There's something that <laughs> I I agree with you completely on that. And there's this really cool trick that Ringo does. Um, I think starting in maybe like third verse or second verse, uh, where they'll do like you know Queen da 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 da. da. And he'll do a drum fill, and he'll hit this symbol. Yeah, it's uh, I think it's panned on maybe the right side, 
but like usually like the fill ends with like the crash crash and that second crash is a much bigger sounding symbol that just sizzles in like you nice. know on throughout like the next line <laughs> and it's this really cool like haunting kind of trick is like the only like jarring thing that continually occurs mm-hmm. but everything else like you said is very mellow yeah and very understated but this one symbol crash is just kind of like whoa and just it like keeps hitting. It, the the sound of the song goes so well with the the lyrics like the whole thing is just very dreamy and like it it just it goes together and it sets the scene for the lyric this sort of nonsensical you know, nothing too specific. It's also another like a one little... of those Lennon songs, like you mentioned, it was at that period where he had a pewter bowl full of ground up acid and he would just lick his fingers and mm-hmm. walk, <laughs> keep tripping as he sort of yeah. walked through his house. It... And it, as a result, like uh, Strawberry Fields and, and Walrus, their time signature flips. Like the first set of verses only has 11, mm-hmm. not 12, uh, you know, uh, bars. And Again, he didn't know the difference. It's not, it's not like Lennon was trying to be musically creative and go, I'll put 11 bars here and not 12. That's what he heard when he was writing the song. Yeah, That's one of the similarities I, I, I have with him as a songwriter is, you know, there's been times like I was recording Everything That Ends Begins Again with mm-hmm. Jay Weigel and, and, and as producer, and Jay was scoring strings. And he called me up and he said, um, I just wanted to check before I score the strings. Do you, you know that you left out a bar here? And then you put it back in on the second verse. And then you flip time signatures just for like two bars in this song here. And I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) But if you're asking me if I made any mistakes, no, that's how the songs were written. (laughs) And he started cracking up and he went, I was hoping that's what you would say. Yeah, "Yeah, that's great, man. It's it's writing to the song as opposed to like a structure, like a pop structure. Well, I wasn't wasn't taught, so I didn't know that there was supposed to be a structure. You know, like... You're not breaking a rule because you don't know the rule. In fact, when John Rankin was still teaching... And I love John. He's a dear friend, and I have nothing but respect for him. He had a songwriting class, and once a semester, he would ask me to come and speak to his students. Mm -hmm. And I remember one class, I I walked in, and I I heard him speaking as he was finishing up, and he was talking about, you know, when you're writing a song, the certain rules, blah, blah, blah. And so the first thing I said was, okay, what I'm going to say is the opposite of what your teacher just said is, there's no rules. Whatever you're writing is cool. Mm -hmm. And... The only rule is, like, are you trying to write for Nashville? Then there are rules you're going to have to follow. You're going to write rock and roll, you're going to write brass band, then there are rules. But if you just want to write a song to freely express yourself, no time signatures, no keys, no chords have to line up, nothing. Yeah. Just write it, man. Write what you feel. Yeah. And John started laughing, of course. But I went around the class. I did, like, a speed writing session where they would each show me their verse course, and I would tell them, take it here and I just went around like mm-hmm. like a nut doing that but it was so much fun because all of them is inc- I learned more from those classes mm-hmm. or at least as much as I taught yeah because the untrained mind has so much to offer mm-hmm. in fact when I got back from Cowboy Mouth and I started taking guitar lessons Shamar Allen was trying to learn rock and roll from me 
And I said, hey, Shamar, I think I'm going to take lessons from John Rank. And he says, don't do it, Uncle Paul. He's going to fuck up your songwriting. <laughs> and I smiled and said, Shamar, I only want to learn the rules, so I'll know which ones I want to break. Right. Yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> also, you're, you're welcome for this untrained mind. On your <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. I don't have many, like, preconceived notions of the Beatles. So, like, I just sort of yeah. come into it. And, like, I don't even listen to the songs in the. That's pretty great. In the, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Context of the Context, album. thank you, of the out. Al- like, I don't even listen that's to the songs great, in the context that's of the album. That's pretty great, because that's really, like, song. yeah. Like, I've never heard this song that's before. That's fresh. And I love it. I, like, <laughs> legit love Like, I want to hear this song a lot now. Wow. Like, yeah, I Man. really, really liked it. Also, the, like, in the first verse, there was, like, this spaceship noise. It was, like, woo, woo. Was there, do you know what I mean? In the first verse? No. No? <laughs> Trying to think of, because it doesn't come back. It's only in the first oh, that's verse. That's awesome. Yeah, and okay. there's like this weird noise, and I noticed that it didn't come back. Like I didn't think it came back, so I went back and listened, and that's when I noticed the whistles in the second verse, nice. and I was like, "What the fuck?" <laughs> like. I can totally get that he was on lots of drugs, but I love it. Like, I love these weird noises. It's, I can't think of another Beatles song where I hear these types of things. I don't Mm -hmm. know. I could be wrong. You know what it reminds me of? In my, like, in the movie in my mind, I could picture, like, an amazing 90s Tom Petty video of this. Of like oh. him in like the you know Alice in uh, Wonderland really, thing, yeah, like for sure something where he's just like you know tripping up, you know tripping balls, and you know everything's like big and blown was up. That, don't come here, come that was a great wide open was tour. That? Great wide. Uh, I think that is on the that what is that that what song is that though? Is that is it? Don't come around here no more. Is that the video for that song? I think so. I think so. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to like picture my because when was the last time we watched a video? <laughs> yeah, really <laughs> valid. Goodness. Uh, yeah, I think that was it. Yeah. Yeah, because that, like, sort of the guitar part in that song is very sort of, like, dreamy. Mm-hmm. That, I don't know. I'm very bad at describing I feel like this sounds. is one that Tom Petty could have done a podcast. great cover of. Well, he was, you know, he was so influenced by that period of their work, I yeah. think. Definitely. Yeah. Absolutely. I love that you uh, come in with an unfettered mind. <laughs> yeah. That's, no, that's great. It's like, you know, because as, as Beatle fans... I can't not, yeah. you know, love them. Yeah, you're completely biased, <laughs> as is he. Well, we're so far removed also from, like, those first times. Like, you're never going to have that first time you heard, uh, you know, I right. want you, she's so heavy. Or right. the first time you I heard. I mean, for me, like, I, as notes. a little boy, the first, like, one of my first musical memories was I, I was, what, six years old? And my older sister, what, what year did uh, With the Beatles come out? 63? So I would have been like four or five years old. I would have been very young. And my older sisters had the album. One of them, I don't even know which one I have to ask one day. And there was a lip print on each of their faces, <laughs> a lipstick print on each of the Beatles' faces. Yes. And nice. as a young boy, that made a profound impact. You yeah. know, from a young age, you see, chicks dig this, man. Yeah, mm-hmm. man. So I'm a fan forever. And, and, and like I said, so much of their, their myth is tied up into why I lived the life I lived. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That uh, it's it's tough for me to to be unbiased. That and the fact that they're you know 
Amazing. Awesome. Amazing. Yeah. 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 Incredible. Yes. Yeah. I mean, and, and anybody who doesn't like them is adult. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, my unbiased opinion does not mean that I don't like them. I mean, there have certainly been songs that there's a couple that I think should go in the trash. Like there's, which ones? I don't have to say. Um, uh, Run for Your Life. Uh, well, I yeah. can see why. Just the, yeah. The, yeah. Uh, the 2020 lens or 2021 lens or what I think we, we did that one in 2020. Yeah. And did you know, though, yeah. he stole that line from uh, an Elvis song? Yeah. Rather see a dead little girl than being with another man. Yeah. And we actually like we sort of discussed that whole thing. Uh, that song is super cutesy up until that line, mm-hmm. wasn't it? Yeah. It was like yeah. a cool tune until he just. Oh, well, we were like, oh, wait, well. Yeah, it like, takes a really weird turn. And then, <laughs> yeah, I was like, well, none of this is necessary, gentlemen, all of you. <laughs> Everyone calm down and please stop threatening to kill women. Thank you. Um, yeah, I could do without that one. Um, and then what was the George one? You like me too much. Yeah, that one, one was real creepy too. Um, don't care for that one. So those are the two so far that I think they should just retire. Okay. All right. Um, and then there were some that I just didn't really do it for me. Um, I've heard enough. Yeah. That's <laughs> <laughs> okay. And honestly, like, even the ones that don't really do it for me, like, I'd still listen to them. You know, like, none of them are wretched. <laughs> you know, I have this friend in Chicago who's a fantastic photographer named Nunu. Mm-hmm. And whenever I would go to visit Nunu in Chicago, you know how people have those little portable speakers that they have? Like, they're tiny little speakers. I got one here, yeah. That they that phone can pick up with Bluetooth. Mm-hmm. Well, we'd be walking around the nice neighborhoods or restaurants in Chicago, and he would be carrying his Bluetooth speaker on his shoulder <laughs> like a jam box, <laughs> blasting Bob Dylan. He listens to Bob Dylan at top volume constantly. Yeah. He picks me up from the airport, and he's driving with one hand, playing harmonica, and rocking with Bob Dylan. <laughs> with hand. So I used to think, I used to just smile and think, I knew he's crazy. You know? And then one day it dawned on me, He's always smiling when he's listening to Bob Dylan. Mm. Now, who's fucking crazy? The guy who's right. always smiling and listening <laughs> to what he likes or the guy who's looking at him going, why are you doing that? Right. <laughs> so I went home and put on the Beatles like yep. immediately and was yeah. in a great mood. Yeah. I was like, now I get it. Yeah. I listen to Beatles as much as I can because it makes me happy. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's, you know, that's kind of one of the impetuses. Impetai. Uh, what's the word? Impetai. I like impetai. I don't even impetai. care if it's the right word. <laughs> I like it. that. <laughs> um, in starting this podcast was, you know, as as the Breton sound was kind of reaching its uh, conclusion, I had been in this kind of period of like ignoring the things I like to focus on the things that were cool and popular to try to like soak that into what we were trying to do. And I just realized, you know, I had reached this level of like, not being fulfilled and happy by music and art. So I just kind of was like, fuck it. And just only listen to the shit that I liked, like for a solid year. Like I didn't listen to any new releases. I didn't give a shit who put out a new record. I was like, (laughs) I'm going to listen to the same, like 18 things that I've loved my entire life and just fell back in love with the love of music and the comfort of music. And, you know, the Beatles were never far from what I was listening to, but like, I really just like threw myself back into the pool and was like, this is my home. Fuck it. Like, these are my people. This is where I belong. You know, Albert Camus once wrote that a man's life's work is to rediscover through the detours of art, those one or two simple and basic pleasures in whose presence 
his heart first opened. Aww. Yes. Yeah. Man, that is spot on. Yeah. yeah. And that's exactly what it was. It was just like sitting there and just kind of, uh, you know, basking in hours of Beatles. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and Oasis. Oasis and I the say, monkeys. I bought a turntable. All... Well, no, I didn't. My, uh, my wife's son, Adam, gave us a turntable three Christmases ago, two okay. Christmases ago. And I instantly started hitting the $3 record bin at Louisiana Music Factory. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, because, you know, I, I love vinyl, I graduated to buying expensive crap yep. too. <laughs> but now it's such a joy. Like we have album night. We'll crack a bottle of wine. We're going to put an album on. We're going to pull out the lyric sheets and I the credits. Love it. And oh. sip our wine and look at the lyrics together and read the credits and who played what. Yeah. It's great I would fun. do that. A few years ago, we used to <laughs> do, do we would have uh, record parties where we, we'd invite a uh, small nice. group over and everyone bring a record and, you know, pick your side. Because, like, it's hard to get, like, 45 minutes of everyone's full albums. But we would say, you know, bring your, your record and whatever side you want to play. And uh, so, you know, you'd, you'd go from, you know, obviously I'd have Beatles down there or, you know, Monkeys. And then you'd go to, like, Wu-Tang Clan. And then you'd go to Death Cab for Cutie. Right. And then you'd end up, uh, you know, with um, Graham Parsons and Emily Harris. Like, there were no boundaries. Right. And everyone just was, like, enjoying whatever they brought. Mm -hmm. And then you're like, oh, this is fucking great. What is this? Oh, this is the Postal Service. This is super cool. Yeah. Uh, so it was just a fun way to just experience music. And, like, everyone had to say, like, I brought this. I'm playing the second half. I love this record because X, Y, Z. And it was just such a fun exercise. Yeah. And a fun way to hang out and do it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I when I I think I posted on Facebook something about when I first got the thing, how what a pleasure it was to put on vinyl and go and change it over mm -hmm. and pause and talk about which songs you liked. You know? Yeah. And it was like you're sharing. It's communal. It's really it's much more participatory. And some young person on my Facebook page, female, posted I prefer to just let music stream and get my freak on all night. And <laughs> well, I, 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 I posted back. Young people have lost the art of savoring the moment. <laughs> and again, she posted, who needs to savor when you can get your freak on all night? So I unfriended her. <laughs> but I can see both sides because sometimes you want to, to like totally, enjoy I totally something. But what that person is yeah. saying is I want music as background. Right. To whatever it is I'm doing. Yeah. Whether it's getting my freak on or cooking or gardening. Right. And that's okay. But I'm not that's saying like you shouldn't have it as background. Want, but that yeah. should be all it is to yeah. you. Yeah. If it's yeah. just wallpaper to you, then okay. I mean, that's, that's fine. You're just not my kind of people. Yeah. I mean, I can see both. Like, there's times if I'm doing something that I know will take a while, but I want to hear, I want to listen to, like, Wings for, like, this three-hour. You, <laughs> you see, I'm doing something that's going to take a while. I'm going to put on a record, and in 20 minutes, I'm going to go, I need to take a break and go flip that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm you know, it it matters to me. Yeah, like, that's okay. Literally, when for Mike and I on our show, I've been teasing him, like, when I turn 63 in two more years, I'm unplugging. I'm getting rid of my phone. I'm getting <laughs> offline. No Facebook. Oh, no nothing. Wow. I'm getting a rotary phone. You want me? Call me. Mail me at my address. Operator, get me Paul's I'm going to be an old fuck that's getting out of here. And River Ridge, 6435. So Facebook disabled me, and I thought, well, there's a good start. You know, oh they might gosh. send me a notice any day now saying you're back on. I'm like, eh, I didn't miss it. Do you find you listen to music purely with intent, or do you ever put it on just like, you know, I'm going to be gardening 
I'm putting on oh definitely this playlist and then it's then it is kind of background. No, music. I don't, or, I don't, I don't. No, no, I don't do playlists. I, I if I'm going to be gardening, I, p- I pick an album that sure. I want to garden okay. to, mm-hmm. and I figure I'm an old man. In 20 minutes, I'm going to need a sip of water. Right. I'll flip the record over. <laughs> yeah. And take a sip of water and get back to gardening. Yeah. Okay, that's fair. So I'm, I, for me, no, I'm not. My, now Allison. It, she doesn't mind streaming. She's got her little portable speaker mm-hmm. and her phone and her Bluetooth. And if she's gardening, she'll go ahead and do that. And mm-hmm. again, no judgment on the young people. Sure. But uh, <laughs> but I, you know, I when I was young, I used to always refer to myself as being old, and it was a running joke between Fred and I because somebody would say, you know, something. I say, ah, no, I'm old, and Fred would be like, you've been old since I met you when you were 21. <laughs> you know? You're an old. And now old. I'm old, <laughs> and I get to say it. And nobody argues with me. And I've obviously been looking forward to it my whole life because I've referred to myself as an old man my whole life. I'm, I'm, I'm right where I'm supposed to be, man. Yeah. I'm good. Love but it. I get sort of like the act of wanting to like actively participate in listening. You know, like you want to put this specific album on and you want to listen to it and know that when it ends and go touch it yeah, and flip it and absolutely. like have that tactile experience and touch your lyric sheets and yeah. study the lyrics and like I get that that's great and mm-hmm. it's you know yeah it's hard to do that because with modern music because you don't have a lot of physical product no. anymore like someone I saw someone post on Twitter the other day um as an artist, uh, I, I, a musician, um, and it's not someone I follow, someone like retweeted their stuff into my timeline, and they were like, buy CDs from musicians. It's like, they're super easy to mail because they're super cheap, like they're produced cheaply, so like the profit is high, that sort of thing. And I was like, we do not own a CD right. player. Yeah, We right. do not have a way to play a CD right. in I got our CDs entire I can't home. even give away yeah. now. Yeah. And Same. with the records, like with Jet Black and Jealous, I did a limited pressing. It's mm-hmm. just, I've already sold half of what I printed, and when it's gone, it's gone. Yeah. I'm not reprinting, you know. If you want it, buy it. It's at Louisiana yeah. Music Factory. It's not going to be streamed. It's not, what else? Well, that Friends. one already is streamed. Go but I'm going to put it. out one. <laughs> Go buy it. It's really good. Go buy it. Thank you. <laughs> I'm actually going to do a vinyl version of Between Friends, which oh, nice. everybody else sang one. my yeah. songs. And Mike and I did it with the same backing band, but with me singing my songs. Fun. So oh, I'm gonna, cool. And we lost some of them in the flood. Mm-hmm. I only had like, I think, seven. So I'm going to release an album, a vinyl, with me singing seven songs on one side and the original singers, you know, John Boutte and Darius Rucker and Kevin Griffin singing the songs on the other mm-hmm. side. Nice. That's a good Eight. record. I remember that. Thank you. That's a really good one. Yeah, it was a really genius move to put that out just as I quit Cowboy Mouth. Right. I didn't sing a song on it. I'd send it to clubs and they'd be like, you're not on this CD. I know, but my best friends are and they're all great singers. <laughs> Look at them. Yeah. Look, it's Darius Brugger. Like, well, Darius isn't coming to play. Yeah, here. Darius won't be with you, Willie. No, no. Is Darius coming? I don't think so. <laughs> put him on the guest list. <laughs> so let's, 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 let's circle back. How do we feel? About putting Cry Baby Cry at 171 out of 223. A lot better than we felt about Long and Winding <laughs> There <Road>. it is. <laughs> valid, uh, in fact, the fact point. that, I mean, and I love Cry Baby Cry, but the fact that Cry Baby Cry is like 150 things higher than Long and Winding Road <laughs> is Only just like 50. mind-boggling. Only like 50 things. <laughs> I, Paul, I don't know. I, I don't know. You know. I have no answers. He's young. He's I'll young, be 40 young. in November. I'm not that young anymore. <laughs> you know, when I was 53, uh, my second ex uh, became ill, and I quit playing music for 18 months and took a job 
as an office supply salesman to make sure both that we had money and that I could get medical insurance, whatever. And I, by the way, was the worst office supply salesman in the history of the business. <laughs> One of my oldest friends, Michael Levy, owned Dameron Pearson at the time, and he gave me the job and gave me a salary for 18 months to not sell things. Uh, <laughs> that's a solid friend. That's right a there. solid yeah. friend. In yeah. fact, when I went to quit, I was like, hey, man, I'm, I'm, I'm going to quit. And he went, good. Because you're really the worst salesman I ever had. No harm, no foul. <laughs> no harm, no foul, man. But, uh, but at the time, you know, I'm all depressed, and, you know, my wife's sick, and I'm working this job, and I'm not playing music anymore. And there was this 84-year-old salesman who was at the next desk, and he finds out that I am a musician. Turns out this guy loves music. When he was in the service in World War II, he saw Nat King Cole play solo piano oh, at a wow. dive bar in Chicago. He saw George Shearing play in San Diego when he was stationed out there. Loves music. So he comes over to my desk, and he's this grouchy, old, bald, fat guy. And he goes, named John Shrew, of all things, Shrew. <laughs> and he goes, hey, son, I hear you musician, huh? And I said, well, I was, John, but I'm, I'm thinking, you know, I'm 53. Maybe I'm getting too old now. And he goes, 53? When I was 53, I was working on my third marriage. I was out dancing with a different woman every night. You're a puppy. <laughs> these guys i love old characters like that yeah. you don't get that anymore oh man new orleans is so different now yeah it's so like america caught up with us we yeah. resisted america for longer than any city in this country man <laughs> yep in fact after katrina everybody people are like where are you gonna live it's like ah i like north carolina i like chicago i like new york i like i like but they're all in america you know new orleans <laughs> we're the northernmost point of the caribbean i'm going yep. back home yeah and now ever since then it's been a constant flood of people from elsewhere and we love it here if we could just make it a little bit more like where we're from mm. yep can yeah. we have you know fancier restaurants and better coffee no can we get a job I, mean, I like the good coffee shops not good the good coffee shops <laughs> sure but when they first started coming i was like bummer Right. <laughs> I, I know I'm going to go there. I go there on the road, but I miss just straight up coffee and chicory, man. Yeah, man. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, I mean, That's uh, how we Old make New it Orleans home. was decay. Yeah. It, it was that accent that, you know, that my friend Jim Fitzmorris, the, the theater director, describes as it's like a New Jersey accent at half speed. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. That's perfect because, yes. you know, my dad's got a heavy Yat accent. People are always like, your dad sounds like he's from Jersey. Well, you know, because at the turn of the 1900s, the Archdiocese of Brooklyn sent 200 nuns down to teach in the Catholic schools of New Orleans. Mm. And that melted yeah. with the Creole dialect and it became who we are, this wow. Yat thing that we yeah. have. Yeah. Man. That's so funny. <laughs> you know, I did actually, I, 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 I worked on the movie uh, uh, JFK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I was hired to read lines with Kevin Costner <laughs> to help him pronounce things like he was saying Huma instead of Homa. Hmm. And he didn't know what to do with Chapatulas. So I was just, you know, <laughs> reading lines and making sure he got it right. And at one point, I, I kind of got a little too comfortable. And I said, hey, man, you know, the accent you're doing is kind of like that Foghorn Leghorn thing that a lot of actors do <laughs> when they come to New Orleans, which my actor friends were like, you didn't say Foghorn Leghorn to <laughs> oh, Kevin <no>. Costner. <laughs> But I didn't know any better. He was doing fog on fucking Leghorn, you know? I'm like, we, we don't really talk like, like that, you know? We yeah. really, we really, New Orleans accent's more like Brooklyn. And he, of course, got mad, and he kind of stiffened and went, well, Jim Garrison isn't from New Orleans. He's from Indiana. I said, look, man, he might not be from here, but he's been here like 40 years. He sounds as much like New Orleans as my mama does, so you might want to go with more New Orleans thing. And I got fired. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and he did fog on Leghorn. Yep. Uh, he didn't sound nothing like Jim Garrison. Yeah. <laughs> It's so weird. Like, why do people who do New Orleanians? You know, in I think that because such... one thing, Tennessee Williams, 
you know, the mm-hmm. sort of that that sort of Blanche Dubois yeah. overly done Southern thing, and also that the the holly, the ear from other parts of the country hears us talking slow and immediately hears Southern drawl, right? Because that's been taught their whole life, and yes, we talk a little slower than they do in New York or or Boston, but it's not a Southern drawl. It's a New Orleans drawl that sounds different. more like slow Brooklyn or slow Jersey than yeah. it does yeah. Southern. Yeah. Right. You know, and they don't, they don't it's, it's a hard like pickup. When, you know, <laughs> when Jim said that, it's Jersey at half speed. I was just like, yes, I fell off, I fell off my stool yeah. laughing. I was so, half speed, that's, yeah. That, I've never heard it put better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm going to have to remember that because that is, yeah. Yeah, we do not do that. I do declare. I do feel like after this show, I will get a mint julep. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no one does that. No yeah. one sounds like no. that. No one does. Yeah, when you know, I went away to college, and people are like, "Where are you from?" And I'm like, "New Orleans." And they were like, "They expected me to like talk like the water boy." Yeah. And I'm like, "We don't talk like that either." Like no. it, they were confused because they had in Virginia more of a southern drawl than I oh, do, yeah, and definitely. I'm like mm-hmm. hours south of you. <laughs> oh, definitely. So they're like, "Okay, you don't sound southern. You don't sound like the water boy. What's happening here?" And I'm like, "Well, we live in a city." We do right. not live on the bayou. Those people do sound a bit like the water boy. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. But yeah, we are we are a we are a type here. We, we are, are a type. We here. are a type. We are a breed. <laughs> <laughs> and God we bless are, us, everyone. Right? We're wonderful. There's nothing wrong with us. <laughs> <laughs> nothing wrong that a good cocktail can't fix. Right. <laughs> How do you feel about one seventy one? Ooh, um, you know, I don't know what's ahead of us. 170 more. I know. Wild honey pie for one. I don't know. You haven't heard oh, yet? Oh, I have. Wild honey pie. So how did that yeah, get Yeah, there should in front be at this? least one more ahead of us. This is wild honey pie. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. I don't even know what to say. I love this guy, but he perplexes me. Same. That's what I'm for, here for. For many reasons. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> you're very cute, but you're very confusing. Thank you. There you go. <laughs> well... Let's uh, let's take it home with some rapid fire questions, shall we? Shall we? All right, different questions, obviously, than last time. Uh, we're going to focus on Lennon the songwriter and Sanchez the songwriter. Uh, your favorite early Lennon song in my life. Your favorite late period Lennon song, Beatles late period. Be- uh, thanks for making the yeah. stipulation. Oh, um, well, Strawberry Fields. Yeah, you know, it's one of the greatest songs ever written by anybody. For sure. Uh, favorite Lennon solo song? That's a tough one. So many great ones. Um, or just one think of. Which one of his I play <laughs> the most often is Watching the Wheels. Ooh, yeah. Mm. Nice. I love the acoustic version he yeah, did at home so on his little cassette player. That's so good. That's the way I play it when I play it. Least favorite Lennon song? Um, probably something off of live in New York City. Yeah, just because it was so thrown together and sloppy. I mean, I can't. I mean, do I? I mean, what's the least favorite? Like, I don't know. They're all fucking great. Is there anywhere you just go like, "Hey, you missed it on that one," but it's okay? Um, no. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny because when I when I when I was thinking about this, I even know. As I was, as I as I wrote that down the other day, I was like, "It's, it's bloody John Lennon shut up." Right? <laughs> I couldn't even think of one, and I was like, I could maybe think of least essential might be like beef jerky. 
Okay, like least essential, beef jerky, sure. Uh, probably, but it's funky as shit. It is. Um, if I had to pick a least favorite, the last minute or two of Cold Turkey. But see, the rest of the turkey. song is great. But once he goes into kind Those of the primal, primal screaming thing, after and like, the Yoko and after 30 seconds, I'm like, okay, I heard it. I'm good. Next track. But still enjoy the rest of the song. But it does amazingly create the same kind of discomfort. Yeah, that that's, gold turkey. That's the thing create, is it makes you feel like which that, makes that, that him a great artist. Yeah, again, exactly. Because you know? like, and here's the thing: like when you ask me like least favorite, it, to me, two of my favorite songwriters are Bob Dylan and Bruce Springsteen as far as rock goes, and I always said that Springsteen is a great rock star and Dylan is a great artist, mm-hmm. and I say that because Dylan is a great artist because he's not afraid to fail in public. He's yeah. failed in public countless times, and that makes him a great artist because he believes that his art is is better than or more important to him than public opinion. Mm-hmm. Springsteen is a great rock star because he will never fail in public. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He yeah. will groom it and refine it and put some high gloss on it, and he will release it. Yeah. Valid. Mm-hmm. Um, Interesting. What was the name of the first song you ever wrote? Do you remember? Yeah, I was six years old, and I wrote a song for my band that I had with my next door neighbor. Shut up! <laughs> yeah, we had a we had a band where uh, I played a Casper the Friendly Ghost guitar, and he played a. Uh, yes. And we, we called ourselves the Possibilities. That's oh, a great yes. band name. That's and so good. I wrote a little song, uh, a theme song. You know, he wrote something to the same theme of uh, Basin Street Blues. But even at six, I wrote an original <laughs> melody. That's awesome. I wrote, I wrote a little song and said. We're the possibilities. Yes, we're the possibilities. It's a banger. We may have no style, but we're gonna try to get up high. Cause we're the possibilities, and that's what we have a possibility. Holy shit. That's amazing. <laughs> that's it. like the that best my imagination movers song they've never written. <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. <laughs> Super on brand for you, also. Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you can cut that part. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> no one will get that. <laughs> Last one. <laughs> uh, what's your favorite song you've written? And I'll count. I'll, I'll add to that. What is your favorite song you've written? What do you think is the best song you've written? I guess Jeff Black and Jealous is my favorite because it's brought me so much. Mm-hmm. The record, I mean, we all as artists strive to have something that people really love. And I mean, it's 30 years ago, and I pe- people still email me or see me when you know around the country and tell me how much that record meant to them. I, I mean, I'm, I feel blessed to have created something that is so special to people all these years later. Mm-hmm. So that one. Um, there's a song I wrote called uh, Empty Chair that my friend Carmela Rapazzo just covered on her jazz record and I'm very proud of that one because it was written after I had taken guitar lessons with John Rankin mm-hmm. and I started to understand a bit better the subtleties of uh, accordion and so uh, I like that one because uh, it's a bit it shows my growth I think as a songwriter it's a bit more sophisticated but it's it's again you know it's going back to those one and two simple or basic pleasures in whose presence your heart first opened mm-hmm. and that was Jet Black and Jealous fantastic 
Um, and what, when was when did you record Jet Black and Jealous? Well, it was recorded. Uh, I lived in New York from 1985 to 1988, mm -hmm. and uh, I decided to come home. And I went to my friend Roger Manning's apartment on Broom Street, which he called the Broom Closet. <laughs> and he sat on my feet, and I sat on a st he sat on the floor at my feet, and I sat on the, a stool. And he would press the record button on the Tascam cassette recorder. <laughs> and I was just going to record every song I'd written while I was living in New York before I moved home, just yeah. to have. So that was 87 or 88. And then in 92 was when I was sitting in front of a Cowboy Math gig mm -hmm. uh, in Five Points in Atlanta. And we had just opened for this band. I forget their name, but they, uh, you know, we said, we, we were from New Orleans. We play original rock and roll. What do y'all do? And they said, we, we're like the Chili Peppers, but different. And in 1992, Every band that we met around the country was like the Chili Peppers, but different. Mm -hmm. And to be frank, I didn't like the Chili Peppers. Same. And I really didn't like the bands that sounded like them, but were different. So I was drunk on Wild Turkey in a <laughs> shitty mood, sitting in front of the club. And this woman, Kathy Hendricks, walks up and goes, you just played a great set. You look like you're in a bad mood. What's wrong with you? And not even looking up at it, just being a drunk asshole, still looking down at my drink, I go, what's wrong with me? I hate the fucking band that's on stage. I hate the fucking band I'm playing with. I'm a great songwriter and nobody cares. And she sticks a card in my face. She goes, I care. Send me your stuff. <laughs> so I sent her my stuff, and she put it out. Wow. Nice. And now we're looking, what, 29 years later? Mm -hmm. Repressed on vinyl. Limited edition available. Yes, indeed. Fantastic. Yeah. Where, uh, where can people pick it up? Only at Louisiana Music Factory. I'm not even selling them myself. I brought them there. For one you thing, it's it. a pandemic. <laughs> well, for, you know, like, I've been friends with Barry Smith for... 30 years since he opened the place, you know, he and his old partner, and I want to support him, you know, and right. I thought about it, and I was like, I'm not going to give this to CD Baby to sell or whatever the fuck I usually do. I'm going to give it to a local store. It's a pandemic. I don't have, you know, if I sell 200 copies, I'm lucky. That's what I'm hoping to do. That's what I got printed. You know, make him some money, make me a little money, but, I, you know, I want to help local. Yeah. yeah. I'm a small artist. I want nice. to help the small nice. people's. So Louisiana Music Factory, uh, dot com, I guess, would be yeah, the so. website if you want to order that online. Highly recommended. Um, and uh, when does another cup of coffee air? Well, it's Monday, Wednesday, and Friday uh, at 9 is live on my YouTube channel. But then, mm -hmm. of course, it just stays there. So you can tune in and catch episodes. It's really just two old friends being knuckleheads together is technical difficulties and <laughs> you know it's all for laughs and there's and live chat fun. interactive live chat on it yes well the, the sometimes we, do, we take questions yeah yeah from our yeah. from our watchers we, we get questions and stuff so Very people fun. actually request you know stories they've heard me tell on the road yeah so that's kind of fun <laughs> nice very cool and uh and what's what are we, are we just getting by for now i'm gonna um, ask you what's up what's next but no i don't have it i'm still rehabbing my voice really yeah. the singing is still is still a, very much a work in progress sure. but a year ago this time i couldn't speak yeah you know so i when i struggle on the days that i really struggle singing i remind myself how grateful i am just to, to be speaking again yeah you know I, I couldn't get a single word out for nine months mm -hmm. and it was a very humbling time yeah. so my plans are to wake up tomorrow and meditate yeah. and have a nice day and practice and uh yeah. Beautiful. No gigs, you know. When They'll I'm be ready. back. They'll be back. When well, the voice is ready, you'll be not, ready. If not, something else will manifest, whatever sure. whatever life brings. I've I've had a wonderful, you know, uh, 
career of traveling the world, playing my songs. In fact, after Katrina, I was in London, and I went to a book signing of Paul McCartney's children's book. Mm -hmm. And I got to shake Paul McCartney's hand and say, because of you and your friends, I didn't shake his hand. <laughs> I got to hand him a present and say, because of you and your friends, I've seen the world with my guitar. Mm -hmm. And he said, thanks, mate. It's nice of you to say. And that's about as good as it gets. Yeah, you can't ask for much else than that. Yeah. Beautiful. Paul Sanchez, thank you so much, my brother. Always a pleasure to have you. Uh, thanks for coming back by ranking the Beatles, man. It was great to be here. It was great to take part in the, you know, talking about the Beatles. I will tune out on the episode for Wild Honey Pie. <laughs> we got a while for that, so don't worry. It's not. We got a while for that. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> yep. Oh, my God. I have to go now. <laughs> All right, man. Thanks so much, Paul. Appreciate it, bud. See you, buddy. Thanks, Paul. All right. Mr. Paul Sanchez, everybody. How about that? What a treat. I knew I was going to rile him up with those rankings. Oh, my gosh. I do enjoy the ribbing that I get from him and the ribbing I give to him about these songs. Yes. Uh, you know, one of the things that we first bonded over when we finally met was our mutual shared intense love of the Beatles. Um, and it's, you know, whenever we played together, we almost always play a Beatles song of some sort. Uh, the conversations always, you know, they always swing from uh, complaining about our time in Cowboy Mouth to talking <laughs> about the Beatles. Uh, so it's a pretty, uh, a pretty good thing we got going, um, but always a pleasure. But friends, I turn the, uh, I turn the floor to you. What do you think about Cry Baby Cry at number one seventy one? Are we too high? Are we too low? Or are we just right, like Baby Bear's porridge? Uh. Mm -mm -mm. Yum yum yum. I do not like this. Just right? I do not like this. You think we're too cold. You like this song a lot. I do. So I do not like this porridge comparison, <laughs> and I want it to go away. <laughs> I want it to end. All right. Well, then I'm going to put it up to our fair listeners. <laughs> what other metaphor, what other comparison should I use for our rankings, for the too hot, too cold, or just right rankings? What do you think? Let us know everything. Let us know everything. How do you want this show to run, listeners? <laughs> Tell us what you would like done differently. Um, <laughs> oh, dear. You've just opened yourself up to yeah, I, I, a disaster. I, I have to cut that. <laughs> uh, but let us know what you think about about this particular ranking and about my goofy porridge comments. You should make it uh, like, uh, just right, like your favorite pair of sweatpants. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Fine. You know what we've all settled into athleisure oh, during yeah. COVID. My Adidas track pants. Oh, I love them. Love, love, love. Adidas, if you're listening, I'll take a sponsorship for track pants. I'd be down with that. Uh, but let us know what you think in the comments on Facebook or on Twitter or on Instagram. If you're not following us on those social media outlets, you can do so by looking us up on Facebook at Ranking the Beatles. Looking us up on Instagram at Ranking the Beatles. Or looking us up on the Twitters at... Ranking Beatles. That's correct. Uh, and if you're enjoying it, let a friend know that we're out there. We are meeting all kinds of wonderful people and talking Beatles with all of them. And we would love to do it uh, with you or your friends that you think might be into it. And also, if you're enjoying us, we would love if you could give us a, uh, a nice little review on your podcast provider of choice if they allow that sort of thing. So, I think we're good. Uh, until next week, my friends, I hope you all have a wonderful, wonderful week. And uh, we'll see you with a fresh episode next Tuesday. So until then, I'm Jonathan. And I'm Julia. This has been Ranking the Beatles. Adios. Bye, y'all.